You're listening to Journal Entries, a podcast about philosophy and cognitive science, where researchers open up about the articles they publish. I'm Wesley Buckwalter. In this episode, Eric Switzgable talks about his paper, The Unreliability of Naive Introspection, published in Philosophical Review in 2008. Eric is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside, where he studies the connections between empirical psychology and philosophy of mind, the nature of belief, and several other topics you could read about on his blog, The Splintered Mind. In this paper, I argue that our ordinary introspective judgments about our currently ongoing conscious experiences are often grossly mistaken, even about what you might think were big, major pieces of experience. So we go badly wrong in our introspective judgments about our experience. In the first uh, few sections of the paper, I give some examples of cases where I think it's plausible that people go badly wrong. And then I walk through some, some responses to objections. So let me define conscious experience. I think the best way to, find, to define conscious experience is by pointing to examples. I don't think you can actually do a good reductive or analytic definition of it or a functional definition of it that doesn't beg the question against some of the major contending theories. So I think when you're defining consciousness, you just have to think about examples. So you currently have some visual experience probably if you're not blind and your eyes are open and you're thinking about it. You might have conscious experiences of tunes running through your head or saying something to yourself. You might have a conscious experience of an emotional reaction of you say you drop something on your toe, you have an experience of pain. Those are the kinds of things that are examples of conscious experience. And when I say that we're unreliable in our judgments about conscious experiences, in our introspective judgments about them, what I mean is that we're unreliable in reaching judgments about those sorts of experiences. By introspection, well, I have a theory of what introspection is, but I don't feel like we need to get into it <laughs> for this paper. Whatever, I just, whatever process it is by which we ordinarily reach judgments like, you know, this is what my pain experience is like. These are what my visual experiences are like. These are the emotional experiences that I'm having, those sorts of things. So whatever process normally produces those judgments, that's what I'm going to call introspection. So what I think is when we engage in the normal process, when ordinary people engage in the normal processes by which we reach judgments about those sorts of things, we actually very often go badly wrong in the judgments that we produce. I've said that we're unreliable. Uh, by that, I mean that we make pretty serious, pretty large mistakes a substantial portion of the time, more often than you might intuitively think was the case. Uh, and for purposes of comparison, I compare it with the frequency with which we make mistakes or are confused about our judgments about ordinary middle-sized objects around us, right? So here I'm holding up a teacup, right? It would be surprising if I were to make a mistake about, oh, there's a, a cup in my hand. And it's easy for me to make perceptual judgments about the nature of the cup. Like it's a little more than half full. It's got a liquid in it that's kind of brown, right? It's got a handle on it on this side. All that stuff is like super easy. But the same level of detail about something like your emotional experience or your visual experience is actually, I think, quite hard. And often we're stumped where we come up with wrong answers when we reach those kinds of judgments. So there are two ways in which introspection can be unreliable. One is that it could deliver the wrong answer. And another is that it could fail to deliver an answer at all. 
right? Compare with a secretary. A secretary could be unreliable if he botches the job, or it could be unreliable if he doesn't do the job at all, right? To be unreliable is to fail to do what you're supposed to do, right? So, or a stock quote program could be unreliable because it gives the wrong price or because it fails to give any price at all, right? So that's the sense of reliability that I mean. And I, I think that um, introspection can be unreliable in both ways. I'm hesitant to use a percentage criterion for reliability, right? Partly because I don't think a 50% cutoff is always a good way of thinking about reliability as the stock program example suggests. And partly because, you know, how do you count up judgments, right? And if you do lots of really easy ones, then maybe it's easy to get over 50%. Whereas if you're doing lots of fine grained ones, then it's going to be hard to get over 50%. I think the better comparison is uh, thinking in terms of similar sized types of judgments about external objects. The reason I got into thinking about this is that I was in a developmental psychology laboratory at the time with Alison Gopnik. And I was reading all of this stuff and talking with Allison about how bad children are in their judgments about their own minds. And at the same time, I was reading all this philosophical literature about how we have this special, maybe perfect knowledge of what's going on in our own minds. And I just, it, it, it didn't seem to fit very well with me. I mean, why ch children make really amazingly, it's funny actually, when you read the literature on this, they're like, like amazingly, what we would think as silly mistakes about their own minds and other people's minds. Uh, you know, so why would children be so bad, but adults be like completely perfect? At the same time, I was also reading the history of psychology and, you know, introspective psychologists didn't think we were perfect in our judgments about our own minds. In fact, Titchener, the great uh, early American introspective psychologist, thought that you needed a lot of training to become uh, good in your introspective judgments about your experience. I've also was influenced by, I, I read a lot of Eastern philosophy. So in uh, Asian traditions, uh, in meditative traditions, it's often thought that it's difficult actually, and requires a lot of meditative practice to get to be good about your judgments about your experiences. So there are all these things in my mind that were pushing toward thinking we might not be so good in our judgments about our experiences. Well, the philosophical literature in the 20th century, when I started thinking about this in the late 20th century, was pretty unanimous in thinking either we're perfect in our judgments about our own minds, we can't actually even go wrong about it possibly, or, well, maybe we're not perfect, but we're very good, we're very reliable. And I thought, you know, I, <laughs> we're much less reliable than either of those, uh, kind of either end of the, of the spectrum of debate as it existed at the time. And that's, so it was actually that kind of, that was what inspired me to do it more than any particular personal experience. With the emotion case, I just the it's it was I chose it because it's an easy place to start, right? Because you can everyone knows the case of the guy banging his fist on the table, red faced, saying, I'm not angry. <laughs> it's like, come on, dude, you're angry. <laughs> right? He's got some phenomenology of ang phenomenology of anger, some experience of anger going on there. We're pretty sure of that, right? But he does he's wrong about it, right? So even people who are optimists about introspection generally can kind of say, Oh yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you maybe in emotional cases you can kind of go wrong. So it's an easy place to start uh, start the case because it seems like we do often go wrong in our judgments about our own emotion. I, th I think also of my my wife, right? This to the extent there is some personal uh, like family stuff in this, right? It's, my wife knows my emotions better than I do. She reads my face better than I introspect. 
right? And I think a lot of people may have that experience that their spouses can tell better what emotions they're undergoing than they themselves, especially because you get invested in having certain kinds of emotions and not having others. Uh, so particular emotions we can go wrong about uh, in particular ways. You might not know that you're angry. You might not know that you're feeling a little sad, right? It's not totally obvious. Now, a lot of times with really vivid emotions, you can tell, ah, oh, yeah, I'm having that emotion. But one of the things that's, I think, a little harder, and remember the case of the cup, right? So not only can I reach the judgment very easily, there's a cup here, but I can also reach the judgment very easily that it's got one handle on this side and it's about half full and all that stuff. Like middle-sized features are pretty easy. With emotion, and I think actually with all experiences, but we do with emotion to start, right? It, it can be, you can, it can be easy if you have a vivid emotion and you're not invested in seeing yourself otherwise to say, I, I'm feeling really bored right now, for example, right? Now, that's just like, there's a cup there. That's the equivalent, right? Now let's think about the character of that boredom, right? Think, think about questions on the middle size structural questions, like, does it have a handle over here? How full is it, right? Think about how do you experience that boredom exactly, right? Is it a heaviness in your face? Is it spread around your body? Is there a cognitive aspect as well as the emotional aspect? You know, how does it fluctuating in some way or kind of staying constant? Those questions, I mean, you can reach judgments about them, but they're not like easy and obvious the way the question, equivalent kinds of questions about a middle-sized object like a cup are. And you can certainly imagine people going wrong about such things, maybe yourself. And if you look at the history of psychology and philosophy, Psychologists and philosophers say totally different things all over the map about the these kinds of mid-level structural details about emotional experience, right? Like referring back to the Eastern tradition, it's common in meditative traditions to think that emotions are things that come and go pretty fast. Most of my Western friends, when I ask them, think of emotions as things that endure for long periods of time. Some people think emotions are really basically bodily experiences. Other people think that they're you know, but they might have a bodily component, but there's much more going on than just kind of perception of your bodily experience. All that kind of stuff, both in the general case and in the specific case, I think is pretty hard. So, you know, the idea that we're infallible judges of every aspect of our emotional experience, that we couldn't possibly go wrong in any of our introspective judgments about our currently ongoing experiences of emotion, even that seems just, that seems to me very difficult to sustain in light of just these kinds of reflections, both personal reflections and reflections from the history of philosophy and psychology. And I don't think it's just that we don't know what words to attach to a perfectly obvious phenomenology or that we're confused about what the causes of the emotions are. I mean, I think those are hard too, but it's also just that, you know, the experience does not present itself with the same kind of obviousness as the experience, the sensory experiences of ordinary things around us. So I think we can be quite wrong in our judgments about our emotion. You know, people say that they care a lot about their happiness, for example, right? And you think introspecting well about your emotional experience would be a really good thing to do to improve your happiness. Like, you know, notice what kinds of things make you happy, what kinds of things don't make you happy. But people don't really do that very well. I don't think people have a very Dan Habern's done some wonderful work on this, right? But I don't think people do a very good job of noticing what their emotions are. I don't think people do a very good job of noticing what actually makes them happy versus makes them unhappy. I noticed, you know, one time when I was working on this paper, I noticed I was out there in the garden weeding and I thought of myself as hating weeding. I was like, it's an unpleasant chore. Right, as I'm out there, I'm like, 
I like weeding. I'm having it. I'm happy, <laughs> right? Like, how did I never notice that I actually kind of enjoy weeding, right? But this, you know, we have this whole theory like, well, it's a chore. You know, we think we're not going to like it, but we don't actually notice, right? So this is one thing, again, maybe harking back to the Eastern traditions, right? People are not so good at noticing these kinds of things. They say that they care about their experience, but they don't show it in terms of where they direct their attention. If you look at how people actually choose, what they actually think about, how they actually, their revealed preferences, as it were, they care a lot more about being successful in social tasks and in accomplishing goals that they care about than they do about what their stream of experience is in that process. So now let's talk about why our uh, introspection of our current, currently ongoing visual experience is also unreliable. So let me just uh, start with the case of how broad a field of clarity you have, right? So most people, when I ask them, will say that there's a, there's a kind of center of vision where vision's pretty clear and you see shape and color pretty precisely, and then there's a periphery to it. And that's I mean, probably right, <laughs> right? And then there's this interesting question of like, how broad is that field of clarity? And most people who haven't thought a lot about the phenomenology of vision or the structure of vision, at least that I've spoken to in our culture, will tend to say that, oh, well, I see there's a kind of stable range of clarity that's maybe 60 degrees of arc or maybe 30 degrees of arc that's all kind of stable and clear at the same time. And beyond that, there's a periphery that's hazy. But in fact, I don't think that's likely to be correct. So one thing that you can do to think about this is uh, well, we know that there's an area in the eye called the fovea, which is about one to two degrees of visual arc. That's about the size of your thumbnail held at arm's length. So if you hold out your arm and look at your thumbnail, like, okay, that big. That's about how much you get really precise uh, shape and color uh, input into your eye at any one moment. And then you saccade, you move your eyes around like five times a second. So what happens, I think, is that people will when they're thinking about how clear their visual experience is or what the structure is of the visual field is they'll saccade, they'll look one direction and they'll say, ah, oh, it's clear there. And then they'll look another direction. They'll say, oh, that's clear there too. Oh, that's clear. That's clear. So they keep looking around and saccading so that wherever they look, it's clear. And that leads them at least within a range of natural saccadic movement. You don't usually saccade way out a hundred degrees, right? Uh, within a range of natural saccadic movement, you think, okay, that's all clear at the same time. But if you introspect more carefully, you can notice for one, one thing you can do is you can notice a part of your visual field, attend to it that while you're not saccading, while you're not looking directly at it. And when you do that, you notice it's actually like, I've got my thumbnail out here, right? And I'm looking this direction and man, my thumbnail is not very clear, right? So you can do that. And there are various things you can do with that. But I think actually, once you start thinking about it enough, it becomes more plausible that what's going on with your visual experience is that there's a very narrow region of clarity that bounces around a fairly hazy background. Now, I could be wrong about that, <laughs> but that's what I think. Uh, and if I'm right, then most people are wrong about the basic structure of visual experience. And notice this is a really simple, basic fact about visual experience, right? Do you have a kind of a 30 degree region of clarity against that's stable against a hazy background? Or do you have a tiny region of fast moving clarity against a much, uh, you know, a, a much more generally hazy background. Those are pretty big differences between 
the way visual experience would be. And if I'm right, most people have the first few and they're wrong. But even if I'm wrong, right, like I get to win, right? This is one of the wonderful things about being a skeptic, right? <laughs> like, well, I tried. <laughs> I'm wrong, right? And the people who agree with me, there are definitely other philosophers and psychologists who agree with me about this. They're wrong too. So their, their introspection failed them. And you, so someone's getting it wrong. So that's one way of thinking about how we could be pretty radically wrong about the basic structure of our visual experience, despite the fact that we have this visual experience like all the time. This is so ordinary, right? You think about it carefully and you get it wrong, right? Isn't that kind of amazing? We don't like we don't do that with ordinary things around us that we, we visually experience. Now, you might say, okay, well, look, I'm having this visual experience of this cup here. I'm holding up the cup in the video, right? I'm having this visual experience of this cup, right? So I'm having a visual experience of a shape like this and a color like that. And I'm certainly right about my, that I'm visually experiencing this shape and this color. I think that's probably correct. But this is what I think is going on. You're reaching a judgment first about the outside world and then derivatively reaching a judgment about your experience, right? So your good knowledge of the outside world serves as a crutch to give you knowledge about your experience. So what you know better and first is, ah, there's a cup here. This is the color. And then you make this inference. Oh, well, if there's a cup there of that shape, I must be having a visual experience of that shape. If there's a color there of that shape, I must be having a color experience of that shape, right? So it's not that introspection adds anything, or is it reliable? It's a kind of like a, just a little hook that you're putting on the end of a, an outward process is more reliable. And I think probably when the perceptual experience is correct and you have an unusual visual experience as a result, th that inference is going to get messed up. So this is kind of turning. So Descartes, this is, I call this move turning Descartes on his head, right? So it's one standard interpretation of Descartes, you know, of course, Descartes scholars, you know, argue about all this stuff, right? But one standard interpretation of Descartes is that he thought what you know first and most certainly is your own visual experience or your own sensory experience, your own experiences in general. And then you infer from your certain knowledge of those to how things are in the outside world. And, what I, and that, that second inference can be, often is, shaping. Right. What I want to say is the reverse of that. What you know first and best is the sensory stuff around you, the middle-sized dry goods in your environment. That's what you know first and best. And then you make a kind of sketchy inference back to what your experience is of those objects. So one of the things that uh, Cartesian skeptics sometimes say, or people in a Cartesian skeptical mood sometimes say, is that, well, look, you know, there, you can doubt the outside world. But you can't doubt your own experience of that world, right? That's a, an important epistemic difference between the two, right? So you could be a brain in a vat being manipulated by genius neuroscientists. There could be a demon out there is deceiving you. But you know for sure that you're thinking and you're having this experience and all that, right? So there's a kind of certainty that experience has that the outside world doesn't have. So a lot of people think that. A lot of people think that we do have at least that epistemic difference between our experience our knowledge of our experience and our knowledge of the outside world. But I actually don't think that works because if you allow the existence of evil demons and neuroscientists, I don't see any reason that they couldn't manipulate your brain too, right? So as to create the experience, say for example, the experience of seeing red while creating also in you the, judge, the judgment that you're not seeing red or vice versa. As long as these things are ontologically separable enough that one could occur without the other, and I don't see any reason to think they aren't ontologically separable, then you could have one without the other with a good enough evil demon or a good enough genius neuroscientist, right? So you can have that same level 
of Cartesian skepticism about your own experience as you have about the outside world. So I don't, I don't actually don't think that Cartesian skeptical argument works to create a principal distinction between our knowledge of our experience and our knowledge of the outside world. A third kind of case that I thought about in this paper was whether there's what philosophers call a phenomenology of thinking. And I was really struck by this because I think it was in 2002, I went to this summer seminar for a week in Santa Cruz where everyone was debating. It was a bunch of professional philosophers, mostly early career philosophers, maybe 15 of us, 20 of us. We're all debating whether thought has some distinctive phenomenology beyond the phenomenology of imagery and inner speech, right? So think of the Prince of Wales, right? Now, maybe you had a visual image, maybe you had an, you know, an inner speech experience or something like that, right? Set those aside. Everybody knows those occur, I think, right? Um, was there also some kind of distinctive phenomenology of the thought of the Prince of Wales over and above the phenomenology of that inner speech or that image that you had? And what it turns out is philosophers totally disagree about this. And psychologists who thought about it totally disagree about it. And we argued about it for a week <laughs> and we couldn't agree. And so it's kind of amazing because, of course, we're thinking the whole time, right? The thoughts are as central to our experience as that seminar table is, right? It was, we didn't disagree about the existence of the seminar table. We knew lots about the seminar table. That was easy to know, right? But like, do you have a phenomenology of thought? That was really hard to figure out. And it wasn't, I think, just a, that everybody knew exactly what was going on. And it was just we, we did had different theories about it or different words to describe this totally obvious experience. It's actually pretty introspectively hard to figure out whether there is some additional phenomenology of thinking over and above the phenomenology of inner speech and imagery. So this is a case where, like, on one view, there's this whole modality of inner experience that's there all the time or a lot of the time for you to discover. And some people who are trying really hard to discover it aren't finding it. That's on one view when there is a phenomenology of thought, or if you think there is no phenomenology of thought, then there are these people who are working really hard who are inventing this whole type of experience that doesn't actually even exist, right? This is like amazingly serious. These are huge errors. Like it almost beggars the imagination to think like, could people really be that wrong? And yet I think people were that wrong, right? It's really hard to know. This is not at all an obvious thing, right? When you really try to do it introspectively hard. So this is the, this is in the paper. This is the third main example that I go into uh, in some detail about you know, a case where we might be pretty radically wrong, pretty unreliable in our judgments about our currently ongoing stream of experience. Even when we're trying hard, even in favorable circumstances of introspection, even with sincere effort. Pain experience is probably the best experience for uh, type of experience for the friend of introspection. And I think one reason for that is that unlike sensory experiences and unlike emotional experiences, pain experiences invite attention to the experience itself. This is actually something I say in the paper, but, but it's something I think. <laughs> right? So when you have an experience of pain in your toe, you attend to the, the experience itself, right? Usually when you're having a visual experience, you're attending to the objects out there. You're not attending to the experience, right? So we are in more of a habit of attending to our experiences of pain. So that's one reason that pain experience we tend to be a little better about, I think, than other types of experience. And yet, <laughs> I don't think we're so great. Again, here I want to distinguish between 
the course is there pain versus is there not thing, which often for all kinds of experience will tend to get right in, in strong, vivid cases, right? We want to distinguish between strong, vivid cases where we're likely to get it right and less vivid cases, right? Like right now, I'm thinking about whether I'm having a headache. Right, like actually introspecting right now. It's not totally clear. Maybe I have a little bit of a headache or maybe there's just a little bit of tension there. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not totally sure. It's not for non-strong pains, non-obvious pains. It's not totally clear that we're always right. What's the difference between a little discomfort or an itch and a pain or a stretch and a pain? Also, again, like we were doing with the uh, case of emotional experience, I would distinguish between the coarsest level of gravity, granularity, is there a pain there, versus more still large facts, but not the very top level. Like what is the basic structure of that pain? How is that a pain experienced, right? And there I think we often go wrong in ways, or at least are unreliable uh, in our judgments in ways that are uncommon for our ordinary perceptions of objects around us. So for example, um, psychologists will distinguish sometimes between affective and sensory components of pain, right? And they'll, and there, there are pains that are associated with different kinds of pain fibers and different kinds of the speed at which uh, those fibers work, right? So if you touch something super hot, right? And then pull your finger back, right? There's this fast pain, it's like the sharp sensory, like, yeah, right? And then there's a little bit slower, a little delay, there's the, Oh, kind of more throbbing thing, right? So part of the structure of pain is that there's like this more fast sensory thing, typically, sometimes, right? More fast sensory thing versus the slower, more affective, negative feeling thing that's kind of less sensorially sharp, but more motivationally powerful, right? That's maybe, if I, you know, if some people are right, that's maybe a basic fact about the structural experience of pain, but it's not like totally obvious in introspection that's what's going on. You know, maybe as I describe it, you can kind of like, oh yeah, that's kind of familiar. But it's not like easy, like, oh, yeah, this cup's got a handle here. Um, so though at kind of pretty large layers of granularity of the structural experience of pain, I think we can often find it difficult to get right. So that's my that's my brief against being super reliable about pain. The title of the paper is The Unreliability of Naive Introspection. Right. And so that's on purpose, because I think that there's a possibility that either something like Tichnerian introspective training or something like meditative practice done the right kind of way could make your introspective judgments less than naive and thus reliable. We should have this goal. We should totally try to know ourselves and try to figure this out. And we're pretty crappy at it. And, you know, so that kind of stinks. <laughs> but it's not totally hopeless. I think we can make some progress. So... You know, the fact that something's hard doesn't mean it's not worthwhile as long as it's like at least kind of possible to make progress toward it. So, yeah, if I was an absolutely 100 percent flat out skeptic, there's nothing you can do to at all improve your introspective knowledge. Then I would say, yeah, no point. <laughs> right. But I don't think that I mean, I think it's pretty hard and we're often way wronger than we think we are. But it's not that there's no hope and it's not that we're never right. right? I think there are various practices or techniques by which we might be able to get better. But also I think the empirical evidence is on all of these is pretty sketchy still. I mean, you'd think, you'd think we'd have better empirical evidence on these things, but 
Uh, you know, it's kind of amazing how little there is out there that's really solid still. So I think those those remain open questions, how, how those techniques work. I have one paper on Titchener's view of introspective training, where I, I went through and I read his whole 2,000-page manual of introspective training, and I tried a lot of the exercises. I, I reconstructed on the web. I don't know if it's still... I should try it to make sure it still works. One of his introspective exercises... You know, so you can listen for they're called difference tones in auditory experience and you train yourself to hear them it's kind of interesting so i did all this stuff thinking about how titchener uh, trains people introspectively and i came to a pretty mixed assessment about that i don't think he decisively established that he could train people with his methods to be better introspectors but i also don't think that it's obvious that you can't what happened in the history of psychology was that kind of behaviorism won <laughs> And, and then later functionalism one. And the whole idea of introspective training kind of fell off fell off of the psychological mainstream project um, before we could really figure out under what conditions introspective training would work or fail to work. One of the things that I'm hoping for for the future of introspection is that we figure out how to create good introspective reports Right? Not just ask people in a really simple way, but really think about the methodology of getting good introspective reports. And then at the same time, we do some sort of neuroscientific and or cognitive behavioral uh, measures. Right, And we look to see whether the neuroscientific and cognitive behavioral measures corroborate or fail to corroborate the introspective reports. Right, And if you get like the introspective report says, Yes, the visual experience was fluctuating in and out like this, right? Oh, and if you look at visual areas associated with vision in the cortex, right? Oh, they were fluctuating in the same same way, right? And then there's behavioral evidence that supports that too. So those introspective reports are probably right. Find stuff like that, and you can say, oh, wait, uh, these conditions, introspective reports seem to be doing pretty well. These other conditions, maybe they are falling apart from the behavioral and physiological measures, so we don't know as well what's going on, right? Those kinds of studies... I think we're only starting to do, but I think that there's a lot of potential uh, in that direction for figuring out more about uh, using introspection as a tool for understanding our stream of conscious experience. That's it for today's episode. Visit our website at journalentries.fireside.fm for more information about Eric Schwitzgabel, his work, and some of the resources mentioned in this episode. 